So I'm going to read this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, and from verse 11 through to verse 22, which describes just what a great thing God the Father has done. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near Through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's pray. Father, it is a really bittersweet day for many people. Because we remember, for some of us with great pain, how our fathers have failed us. Lord, for others it's with deep gratitude for the godly model that they were. Thank you and we praise you, Father, that we can look to you, the perfect Father. In you is light and there is no darkness at all. And we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. We pray that you would open our eyes by your Holy Spirit, that we would see wonderful things in your law. And Father, we pray that you'd bless and strengthen us as we love one another, because you have first loved us. Give us a deeper knowledge and real understanding of how much you love us in Christ. May we know the power of your spirit at work in our lives. 
For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. During COVID, I unofficially worked with the Moderator General of the Presbyterian Church of Australia to see how together we might best or better minister to Indigenous people throughout Australia. Normally, the Moderator General flies around the world and he looks at different organisations, different missions um, throughout the world and he reports back to the General Assembly of Australia, which happens once every three years and will actually, the next one is happening this coming week. During COVID, though, all international flights were cancelled. And so I thought, I suggested to him, because he's a friend of mine, hey, why don't we, instead of focusing on what's happening overseas, why don't we focus in particular what's happening in Australia, especially amongst Indigenous peoples? Because there's lots of different Christian missions and Christian mission agencies that are happening throughout our country. And so we started we got in touch with every single ministry to Indigenous Australians throughout Australia to learn how we, particularly as a Presbyterian church, might be able to do things better. Now, it's all unofficial, it's all um, anecdotal, but we discovered a couple of really fascinating things. The first was when we came to talk to an Indigenous senator, many of you will know of, Jacinta Nembajinga Price, and her father, David Price. Jacinta, she said herself, is not a Christian, um, but her mum and dad actually go to a Baptist church in the Northern Territory, so she was raised in a Christian family. Her dad strongly recommended to us that we read a book by an Australian social anthropologist, uh, a guy that I'd never heard of before, but who I've come to deeply respect, a man called Peter Sutton. And he'd written a book called The Politics of Suffering. It took me a while to get around to it because even though her father was saying, you guys, you two religious fellows have got to read this book, I thought, oh, it sounds too political. I don't have time for all of this. But after a while, I eventually got around to it and it was brilliant. In fact, I think it's probably one of the best books I've ever read. Now, again, Sutton himself is not a Christian. Uh, but he lived amongst Indigenous people for about 20 or 30 years in the late 60s, 70s and 1980s. And because of that, he was formally adopted into many of their clans and now speaks fluently three Indigenous languages. The conclusion that Peter Sutton comes to, and again, can I stress, he's not a Christian, okay? If you read the book, you'll see why. <laughs> His language is, let's just say, colourful. Uh, he said, what helped Indigenous people the most was not the political strategies of left and right that you see throughout Australia in the last 30 years. It was the Christian missions. In fact... Sutton argues that so many of the current social problems that happen in Indigenous communities are the result of the Christian missions no longer being there. As soon as they left, he observed, and he himself was living amongst a Presbyterian one, ironically, uh, for a few years before it shut. As soon as it shut, families started to break down. 
And there was the subsequent flow-on effect that happens with fatherlessness, substance abuse, school truancy, and increased rates of crime. Now, once again, can I stress, Sutton himself is not a Christian. And if anything, he would probably describe himself as being on the left politically. But that's what Sutton found. A few years later, I met another retired anthropologist. This one right here in Tassie. Again, not a Christian. She was formerly the head of Indigenous Studies at UTAS. Her name is Carol Pribus. You may or may not have heard of her. She's a lovely old lady now and actually lives not far from me in Snug. Um, I actually had the great personal privilege of having coffee with her in Kingston just the other week. Carol did her doctorate on the impact of the Presbyterian missions in South Australia. And once again, her conclusion was that she found from the Indigenous people themselves that they were overwhelmingly positive. These are not things you hear about in the mainstream media, are they? She said, in fact, so unpopular was her findings. Again, she's not a Christian. She's got no skin in the game for this. But whenever she would present these findings to her class, invariably people would stand up and walk out. But her academic opinion was that Christian missions did an enormous amount of good. And while they don't exist anymore, what the Moderator General and I found is that it was actually today local churches throughout Australia who were doing the best job, practically speaking, of reconciling black and white, Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians. Because it's as we come to trust in and worship Christ together that you don't see black and white. You actually see a brother and a sister. Those racial hostilities and antagonisms are gloriously broken down. A number of weeks ago, I actually did an interview with a Pentecostal pastor, a guy called James Deegan. He has a really amazing story because he grew up and he suffered every kind of abuse you could imagine. And yet his message was, he's an Aboriginal, Indigenous pastor, is that he needs to forgive. Indeed, in his interview, he even asked the people watching, and I'm going to hopefully release this interview this week, his main message was, will you forgive me for the things I've said against you? Because he said, I grew up hating white people. And he said that for him, it's that message of the gospel of forgiveness by forgiving one another that we can truly find healing and reconciliation. And in fact, Peter Sutton said the same thing. At the end of his book, and this is a man that's integral in um, helping Aboriginal people with native title and things like that. In the end, he quotes a poem by John Donne saying that the way forward is forgiveness. In fact, James Deegan, this Indigenous pastor, has even started a group called the Forgiveness Foundation. And the reason I say all of this is because that's really what this passage that we have before us today is about. 
It's one of the central truths in all of Paul's letter. That Jews and Gentiles, as well as people from every nation under heaven, can be one in Christ Jesus. Because the gospel is God's power, and this is really what I want to say to friends. The gospel is God's power not only to reconcile ourselves vertically between ourselves and God, but also to reconcile people horizontally one to another. And so in a beautiful sense, you could say that the gospel message is profoundly cross-shaped. Not just by focusing on the death and resurrection of Jesus, that's true, that's what the gospel centers on, but it's because its message has both a vertical and a horizontal effect. Now, there are three movements in the second part of Ephesians chapter 2. And they are what we once were, verses 11 and 12. You can see this on your outlines. What, did, what Christ did in verses 13 to 18. And then finally, what we are now in verses 19 to 22. The first point then is what we once were. Again, Paul's argument can be summed up into three smaller subpoints here, right? And that is, before we came to faith in Christ, we were outside of Christ, outside of Israel, and outside of God's promises. We truly were in every way outsiders. And all of this follows on, by the way, by the glorious truths that Paul has just been explaining in the first half of chapter 2. That's why verse 11 starts with the word, therefore. Paul's drawing on everything that he's just been saying about what God has done through Christ. He's turned us from death to life, from being followers of Satan to being followers of God, from being objects or, uh, of wrath to objects of mercy. Now, it's crucial to realize just how hopeless our spiritual condition is outside of Christ. For we truly are without hope. We are lost. As such, there's no way that we could possibly save ourselves. As we saw from the prologue in Ephesians 1, that takes the supernatural and sovereign intervention of God. Ian Smith who many of you know and is the principal of Christ College in Sydney, it's a Presbyterian training college, told me a story once where he almost drowned at the beach. When Ian was young, he was a champion state swimmer. And he won lots of races, was super fit, everything like that. One summer's day, he decided to go swimming at the beach and he thought, I'm such a good swimmer, I don't need to swim between the flags, anything like that. Well, as you can imagine, he got pretty quickly caught up into a rip and was being dragged out to sea. Sydney beaches, middle of summer, they're pretty crowded. It's hard to notice people, really. He tried to swim out of the rip. He knew what he was doing. Don't swim directly against it. Try and even swim across it. It was no good. And he said he got tireder and tireder and tireder. And he got to the point where he thought, I'm going to go under. 
I've got zero strength left. But he said, do you think I could put up my hand? Do you think I could raise my hand as a champion state swimmer and ask for help? It was so difficult, he said, to swallow his pride and just to put up his hand and ask for help. But eventually, he realized he had to or he would drown. The lifesavers came and rescued him. And even then, uh, he said anything he could do to help the lifesaver was counterproductive. He had to reach the end of himself and simply had to accept the help of someone else. It's is true, isn't it? You've noticed when somebody's drowning, sometimes the rescuer themselves can drown because the person is still struggling. The best thing they can do is give up. It's pride, though, isn't it, which keeps so many people from putting their trust in Jesus. We're just so unwilling to ask for help. To admit our inability, to acknowledge that we're helpless. That's why the truths which the Apostle Paul is writing about here is so important. By nature, we are all, notice, without hope and without God in the world. But then just take a look at what Paul says in verse 13. If you still have your Bibles open, this is the great transition in his argument. It's the truth which gives us hope in the midst of our hopelessness and despair. Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Those words, but now, are like a glass of cold water on a hot summer's day. We were completely and utterly without hope. But now, God has done something to reconcile us to himself. Let's read again what he says in verses 14 to 16. Because these truths are just so glorious and life-changing. Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now, as I said before, the reconciliation that the Apostle Paul is talking about here is both vertical and also horizontal. It's vertical in that it reconciles us to God, but it's also horizontal in that it reconciles us to one another as Jews and Gentiles. We were two, but through the cross we become one. This is a major theme in the New Testament and it's often overlooked. We often just tend to think of the vertical and we neglect the horizontal. We tend to think of justification being what reconciles us to God, 
but it actually has a flow-on effect of what also reconciles us to one another. Because the law of Moses not only showed the Israelites how sinful they were and how they fell short of the glory of God, it also demonstrated how different they were to all the other nations around them. Even if they did only observe the law imperfectly. Through the person and work of Christ, though, the dividing wall of hostility has been taken down. Jesus has removed its barrier and its condemnation. Now, all of which means there is no separation now between not only ourselves and God, but also of Jews and Gentiles. As we all know, the Jews unfortunately turned their observance of the law into something that they could boast in. And can I say, quite frankly, like the scripture says, in doing so they perverted the law and they distorted it into a form of self-righteousness, as if their own performance or works of the law would give them justification not only before God, but there you can also see the flow-on disastrous effect of alienating them even further from other people. But from the very first moment that the Lord called out to Abram, what was the purpose or what was the essence of that promise? It was to bless all nations. Israel was to be a light like, and, and like moths to a flame, Israel was supposed to attract all of the nations around the world to come and worship the Lord. It wasn't meant to put the other nations away. It was meant to draw them near. But rather than being a witness to the nations, the Jewish nation started to see the promises of God and his revelation as belonging exclusively to them. And so... Rather than the law convincing them, A, of their own sin, in their pride, they started to distort the law, not all, but some in the Jewish nation, that they were more righteous than everyone else. Especially of we Gentiles who by nature do not have the law and its associated promises of forgiveness. Now, the death and resurrection of Jesus, friends, is the defining moment in all of human history. Because it means that through faith in Christ, we no longer look at God or even each other the same way. Sadly, every single ethnic group on earth has, I think, a form of racism attached to it. We all think like the Jewish people did at some point. By nature, we all deep down believe that our culture is superior to everybody else's. Like there's a joke down in Kingston, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. <laughs> we all think it, don't we? No matter what culture you're in. When I was studying at Moore College, we had a couple of uh, what you would call Messianic Jews in our year. 
They were people who had grown up Jewish, but had come to trust in Jesus as their saviour. And they really were wonderful, godly people. One day in class, though, they started to rebuke the rest of my year for how fortunate we were as Gentiles to be able to share in the blessings of the gospel. Fair enough. They started to take it a bit far. After all, they said, the promises of the gospel came through the Jewish people. You guys are nothing. We were all simply, and they were right again, ingrafted branches. But their argument was, you Gentiles really need to know your place. Whereas they, whereas we were the branches, they were the trunk. The heart and the centre of God's saving purposes. Uh, while they were theologically correct, I don't know, there was something about it, something a spirit in which they said it, and it just felt like they were being proud and condescending. And so after a particularly sharp comment from one of them, I couldn't help it anymore, and I shot back, and I said, yeah, well, at least we didn't kill Jesus. (laughs) It wasn't, can I say, my finest moment of pastoral sensitivity. But it reminded me of just how amazing the work of the gospel is. There's no way we should have been sitting in the same room together. I mean, even look around our own room. If it wasn't for the work of Christ, we wouldn't be in relationship with one another. We'd probably view one another from different cultures with disdain suspicion, and maybe even hatred. But through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the dividing wall of hostility has been removed. It's also why Paul rebukes, remember, the Apostle Peter in Galatians 2 when he had stopped eating with the Gentiles. Because it's like he's resurrecting the wall of hostility which once divided them. And as such, by not eating with the Gentiles, it wasn't any small thing. Peter was actually denying the gospel. Which is all the more serious when you realise that in Acts chapter 10, Peter had been given a vision from heaven. Remember with the, the great sheet let down with all the different animals, all the different foods which were according to the law of Moses unclean. And three times, not once or twice, three times, Peter is told by the Lord not to call anything impure that the Lord has made clean. And the reason why that's so important is because it says that there is nothing that should come in the way between the people of God. For through the person and work of Christ, we have become brothers and sisters in the same spiritual family. It's all very reminiscent, I think, of what happened when Jesus died on the cross and the curtain in the temple was torn in two. You know, this huge and heavy curtain was torn in two from top 
to bottom, which means it must have been the supernatural act of God because there's no way a person on earth could have done such a thing without being noticed. But even more incredibly, the curtain separated the place where God himself dwelt, the Holy of Holies. It's a wonderful sign, really, of the open access that we have now to God through the person and work of Christ. We can approach God's throne of grace with confidence because we have a true and perfect high priest who has gone into the heavenly temple for us, you see? The book of Hebrews applies this particular truth like this. Uh, If you turn over to a minute, have a look at chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. It's just towards the end of the New Testament. It says this, We who have fled to take hold of the hope offered offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You see how the, the, the heavenly reality was foreshadowed on earth. Now, what does all this mean for us now? Well, that's what Paul addresses next in the final section, verses 19 to 22. And once again, there are three things which he says we now are. Through faith in Christ, we are God's people. We are God's building. And then finally, we are God's dwelling. Paul says at the end of verse 20 that Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. I love the name cornerstone for a church. It tells you something very precious about our identity as believers. Christ himself is the one whom we are all built. He is the one. Paul says in verse 21, In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And then he immediately goes on to add, And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Holy Spirit. It's an incredible thing to realize that Christ Jesus is himself at work in and through us. We are his precious possession. The Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 2, remember, describes it like this. He says, like living stones, we are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is what we are now. I want to conclude this morning then on a provocative note. And that is Christ is very literally calling us to be 
the voice. While we'll each have our own personal convictions about the upcoming referendum, the one truth I think we should all agree on and see this morning from God's word is it's the gospel which will close the gap. And it's as we point people to the person and work of Christ that real reconciliation occurs. Without him, there is only opposition and disharmony. Through Christ, though, both the gap between ourselves and God, as well as, as we've seen this morning from God's word, the gap between ourselves and each other can be overcome. And as, as such, it's the one thing which will truly work. You see what a precious and powerful gift the gospel is? It is the power of salvation. Yes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but so that we can all be one in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your great work of salvation. We thank you that through faith we are one in Christ. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to not just treasure this, but to share this. Lord, we pray for our nation and we ask that the gospel will spread. We pray that as you teach us to pray, your kingdom will come, that your will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. We thank you for what we've learnt this morning from your word. And uh, we pray, Heavenly Father, that we'll live lives that reflect the truths of what we've learned. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.